You pressed play on this podcast with the click of curiosity. It is another dimension, a dimension of mind, a dimension where nothing is sacred and everything is explainable. You're streaming into a land of both inside and outside of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the midside. Welcome to the midside where our islands aren't filled with fire or children. Because we don't have any islands, so that's really easy not to make those mistakes. Everybody else, though, what are you doing with your islands? We'll talk a little bit about that today. But first, I'm your host, Justin Emlesneski, the hopeful romantic, and I retroactively and proactively denounce anything anyone has ever said and ever will say on this show. Uh, I kind of like making the opening quip and mini rant sort of about the episode title so i think i'm gonna go more in that direction from now on i don't know i just had that thought and i thought i'd let you behind the scenes while i transitioned into introducing my co-host because you can't just jump from saying my name to jump to the co-host that just seems very uh hacky so now i can introduce my co-host joining me this trip from his corner office identifying as a woman to forgo his white male gay privilege william green hello hello Yes, uh, the continued unpacking is happening, and uh, I, I watched the fight last night on my very uh, small, compared to my regular uh, TV, computer monitor, which is actually a giant uh, computer monitor, but uh, I went and bought furniture yesterday, like adult furniture. Justin, I'm, I'm what, 43 years old, and I actually own non-IKEA furniture now. I have crossed a threshold that I will never, never uh, return to. The pre well, uh, welcome, <laughs> welcome. You, I, you, I know. On the I, other I, side this now. is an accomplishment. This is quite an accomplishment. I own non IKEA furniture. I think the only the only IKEA furniture that is left is I have a dining room table that is super solid. And if I told you it was IKEA, you wouldn't believe me. And uh, and I have some lamps that I'm using using as temporary lighting because I'm working on the electrical uh, this week and replacing a bunch of lights and stuff like that. So I have some cheap like. You know, those super cheap, like $5 lamps, you know, stand lamps. Uh, so, but those are, those will soon be gone. The the dining room table I'm keeping, it's, it's solid wood. You, you would never believe it was Ikea. And I can't uh, imagine uh, needing any other dining room table, but I think I've crossed a, an adult threshold. Is this what adulting is, Justin? Uh, I think this is what people mean when they say they're done adulting. They're just buy, done buying real furniture. I think that's what those that shirt and catch yeah. phrase means. Oh. All right. Uh, you, you've definitely crossed the threshold. Just be careful now. I'm going to warn you. Don't fall into the uh, pretentious millennial adulting, which is instead of buying from Ikea, you buy from Wayfair. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. It's All slightly right. more expensive, but not much higher quality. Right, you actually have to when you're adulting it you to look at real furniture stores, figure out what you want, and compare and find a good price. Don't just go to Wayfair because you know they use the advantage of internet marketing and internet design to um, sell their stuff. And also, there's one other threshold you have to cross, and that's when you buy a real piece of art to put up in your place. Uh, when you have a spot am, on the I wall, and you're like dangerously close to Quint. Cordaire uh, Fine Art Gallery. It's only like a 40-minute drive, so 
Well, there you go. So you are going to go full adult soon. So, yeah, I might. Oh, well, there you go. A statue? I don't even think I've reached that level. I think a statue is beyond, like, a painting on (laughs) the wall. it's not giant. It's a smaller version. (laughs) It's not like a giant. Yeah, but how big is it? I think it was four feet. Yeah. Dude, that's like how many Funko Pops? Like, (laughs) That's true. That's true. Although I just put up a, uh, a Funko Pop layout of... The Magic Kingdom. That's my current project. So, so maybe I, I'll throw I'm, some of those. Am I pictures. still allowed to have my newfound glory posters and banners up? Because those I, those I still have them fairly. Up. I was gonna say those went up fairly early in the new house. But so here's the thing: my newfound glory banner is in my garage. So when I pull it in my garage every day, I see it. Although I do have a poster in the house of uh, when I went to one of the VIPs for one of the concerts that's signed by the guys. But I don't know. I think that's acceptable. All right. All right. I, I think the adulting is when you're paying attention to the quality of things, not just cheap because you need something. And I think that's what Ikea is, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't, right. I, I knew I was moving so much, so I never wanted to, yeah, I never wanted things that were heavy either, which right. usually meant they were cheap. <laughs> well, and you never want to when you're moving a lot to have high quality stuff because inevitably stuff gets dinged up. And then you're oh, like, yeah. oh man, I should have paid all that money for that. <laughs> I was super lucky so far. I, I think I've gotten everything, but there's the living room electronics that have not been unpacked yet out of boxes. Uh, the only thing that broke was ye olde ancient crock pot, uh, got, uh, the crock pot itself shattered. That's the only thing that has been broken so far. So I'm crossing my fingers when I pull the rest because I've got the, you know, all my vintage gaming equipment and the, uh, and the home entertainment system, like the, the, the sound bars and stuff like that, like the speakers, those got to come out. And if, as long as those come out uh, unscathed, I will have moved with only a broken cock crock pot. So that's pretty good. Uh, a broken, a broken cock. What? Uh, no, no, that's, that's working just fine. <laughs> well, you're unpacking physically all week. Why don't we take the time right now to take a cue from Topanga, from Sean, from Eric. And why don't we unpack some ideas and some culture in Life on the Midside. As always, if you'd like to support the show, you can do so through Patreon or Locals. Patreon is per episode, Locals is per month. That's any, and we accept any and all support, including, and most of all, affirmations. I don't know where my brain went while I was saying that. I think it was such an autopilot that it was like, wait, how do I say this again? Also, because this first story, uh, we have an update here on the most magical farce on Earth, and of course, Ron DeSantis's terrible campaign. And part of the question here, William, is, is this an attempt to sort of reboot his campaign, or was this inevitably sort of what we always said he was going to do? And the question is, what happens in our society when politicians do things for political pragmatism, but it has long-term effects? And that's sort of the the way to look at this. So the headline from deadline, the headline from deadline. I like that. Why doesn't deadline use that as like their marketing? The headline from deadline. Uh, Ron DeSantis says he has moved on and Disney should drop the lawsuit. So a couple paragraphs here. 
Last call host Brian Sullivan asked DeSantis why he doesn't pick up the phone and call Disney CEO Bob Iger to resolve the dispute. And DeSantis said, we've basically moved on. They are suing the state of Florida. They're going to lose that lawsuit. So I, what I would say is drop the lawsuit. You have the state that even CNBC ranks as number one of all 50 states for our economy. Right, which is which is true, right, William? And would it not be fair to say that Florida is probably the most business friendly state? Yeah, I would I would say so. I, I'm I'm a little skeptical of anybody reporting which state or is the most business friendly. Here's the reason why. Wasn't New Zealand always ranked as like the number one country for business <laughs> and then they had the most draconian they had that that witch of a PM like just draconianly lock down New Zealand. Um, because they're an island. And, and everyone knows if you're an island, you can just stop the rest of the world from coming in or your people from leaving. Yeah, yeah. So, like, uh, I'm I'm a little skeptical of uh, of those sort of rankings. But that skepticism aside, I, I think, uh, you know, even the states that are mostly uh, are, are have this higher freedom ranking, you have to be careful of where their weak spots are. So in the case of New Zealand, right. it's the fact they're an island and have a witch PM. In the case of <laughs> Texas, it's because they have a stupid energy policy and now they're paying the price. So their energy prices are skyrocketing. Yeah. Um, and then in Florida, you have uh, you have this uh, anti-wokeism, which uh, right. on its own is uh, is – um, a mixed bag at best, right? I would take it a step further, and you're not here, so you wouldn't know that. Uh, but I would say it's the anti-wokeism combined with the Trumpism in Florida is the issue. Because I don't think the anti-wokeism is in itself bad, although defining So is your... it Trumpism or TDS? Or both? There's not really TDS here, unless you're considering people who are pro-Trump having Trump derangement syndrome as well, which is actually something that hasn't been commented on, but you could argue that Trump derangement yeah. syndrome is either pro or against him. Way. I definitely yeah. think it cuts both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So then I would say, yeah, it, it's it's Trump derangement syndrome, uh, pro-Trump derangement syndrome, combining that with anti-wokeism. You know, you could say you're not supposed to define your beliefs by being against something, but I don't think standing against woke is necessarily bad. But standing against woke in the sense that you had to fight it the way Trump does, I mean, that's what we've been commenting yeah. on with DeSantis's whole campaign. And that's the question here, because look at what Iger said. Iger has called DeSantis anti-business and anti-Florida. In the CNBC interview, DeSantis said that no one has made Disney more money recently than me because during COVID, they were open in Florida. They were locked shut in, Calif in California. We said, we want you guys to operate because we understand how important it was that their cast members in Central Florida had the ability to make their ends meet. In fact, when Disney closed their parks, I didn't tell them to close. They did it voluntarily. And that's the thing here. He, not, none of that is wrong, right? That was the biggest boon in DeSantis's cap, right? The biggest wind in his sails, the biggest feather in his cap was that he kept everything open, right? And we was closed down for about a month. But Iger is also right here because what De DeSantis did later was anti-business. And that's the question I have for you, William. Is this just DeSantis trying to reboot his campaign because he realizes how badly he messed up from straying so far from his COVID policies and rhetoric? Maybe. I mean, did they fire some of his campaign staff since last week? But uh, 
it could be, but I think I think we're we're seeing sort of battle of the tards here because it's like it's it it's it was fundamentally anti individual rights, and because DeSantis reached for that tool for the government club instead of the principle of individual rights when dealing with Disney, uh, it's it it has undermined his principle, right? The principle that yes. he's standing on. So it's not just that his campaign is undermined, and this and he's trying to undo this, but. He's not going back. He's saying, oh, you know, look, I'm not anti-business. It's like, well, wait a minute. Whether you're pro or anti-business doesn't matter. In this case, you were anti-individual rights, and that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. I don't like. I don't know about this grandstanding, this idea that they will lose. Uh, I mean, I would think Disney wouldn't sue unless they thought they could win. So I don't know. I don't know if that's just political grandstanding. And on the other hand, the long-term thing here, William, is he's already dissolved the Reedy Creek District. So he's already fundamentally changed how Disney operates in a way that, as you said, is anti-individual rights. So is the damage already done is the other question. I don't know. Only time will tell. I mean, here's the thing. I, I, I agree with you, but if we look at it in terms of hundreds of years... Right, which is what we have to when we think about Disney. We have to take think about these long timescales, right? Because um, Disney is celebrating its hundredth year as a company. Yeah, um, you don't think that they're just going to recapture this through regulatory capture? Like, I, I give it five years. Yes. Yeah, and and we'll see what happens. And that's really the the point about all of this is. So much is made of this in the short term, but really this is a long-term thing and we can only wait to see the consequences of it. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn to uh, other sort of rhetoric and propaganda that's pushed out there. Uh, The AV Club. The AV Club is a site we haven't talked about for a long time, but they were one of the people sort of... They're still around? Yeah, they're still around. They're still pumping out their insane takes. And one of their takes this week was leading the charge against a independent country artist's song. So the song is called Rich Men North of Richmond, which before we even go anywhere else, William, isn't that a great title? Yeah, I like it. It's very clever uh, with the way it's written, right? The parallelism there with rich men and Richmond, right? And North of Richmond. And I will say this. I didn't know what the title meant until I listened to the song and read the lyrics. I had never heard that phrase before. Had you heard the phrase before hearing of this song? The phrase Richmond, North of Richmond? Yeah. No, I hadn't. All right. So maybe it's a Virginia thing. Maybe it's a Richmond yeah. thing. I don't know. Maybe this guy came up with it. It's it's pretty cool. I mean, from an artistic sense, it's well done. So this song has sort of gone viral on its own, independently, And I don't know if this is a new thing that's going to be coming down the pipeline. Because remember a couple of weeks ago, we saw the attack on Jason Aldean's song. So maybe they're just going after. Do you think they're going after country music in general? Like, is this going to be the new culture warfare? Uh, Well, they've got there's two fronts of an attack on country music. Um, And this is someone who's not necessarily a fan of country music. The first attack was the sort of popification, meaning like it just it got undifferentiated from other music genres. And that's happened across the board, right? Like everything has become pop, right? Um, and that 
the second thing is the demonization of country music, right? Um, the sort of cleaning of any sort of social commentary. There's only one kind of social commentary allowed in, in, in modern country music. And I think you combine those two factors, Justin, and uh, country music had a strain of folk music in it, right? Just like, you know, pop punk has that sort of like angsty independence uh, as yeah. its mainstream. And I think you combine those two factors in it and it sort of cuts at the core of country music. And so you don't have, you have people going through the motions of making folk style music without it having the essential element of the writing. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's what you're saying with the, with the attack on it, because it used to be, and this is true of pop punk too. People were just dismissive of the, the genres. So with pop punk, it was sort of just like, Oh, you're immature. Pop punk's an immature thing. You grow out of it. Remember that old catchphrase? Oh, Oh, you grow out of pop punk. Yeah. And with, now we look around, now we look around at, at, at the concerts and it's like, uh, I'm seeing multi-generations two And sometimes even I thought three in one case, generations of families watching. Yeah. um, When I went to uh starting line, newfound glory and all American rejects a couple weeks ago, my wife and I went it was everyone was so old there and they there you know there were little kids there was one asian family where like their kids were dancing in the aisles and i was like i never would have like 20 years ago predicted this would be happening in my life you know what i mean like a six-year-old eight-year-old asian kid with his you know entire family in florida nonetheless you know what i mean it's not like we were in southern california so yeah oh by the way just a brief side note on that have you ever seen the all-american rejects live I don't think I have. So I've never been a big fan of them, and I never really knew why. And then we saw them live. So they were on after Newfound Glory. And, dude, they were so boring, we left. Because we didn't want to sit in the traffic, because we had to. We were in wow. Tampa. They, they just went out there. They didn't say anything to the crowd. They were all dressed plainly. They didn't move while they were playing. And it sort of explains their sort of desanitized music. Right? And that's really... to. To circle back here, that's really what people are going for here. Because the thing on country was always, oh, it's just bad. It's not good music. Remember, that's what people always say, like, oh, it's a joke to like country. And then, again, I lived in Clemson, and I started listening to country more, and it's actually good music. Right? One of my favorite bands is Montgomery Gentry. You know, one of the the duos dead, so, you know, may he rest in peace. So they don't make music anymore. But they were making it, you know, for about 20 years, early 2000s, for a long time before the the tragic plane crash, but it, it's good music. And now it, nowadays it's, Oh, it's racist. Oh, it's racist. It's, it's anti-woke, right? It's anti-social justice. And it's, it's interesting how they're doing that. And this, this article by AV club really shows that. So here's the lyrics they're criticizing. And then I'm going to read the lyrics and then I'm going to read two paragraphs. And we're going to talk about each of the paragraphs. Okay. So the lyrics, There's a whole song, but this is specifically what they're criticizing. It says, I wish politicians would look out for minors and not just minors on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the streets, ain't got nothing to eat in the obese milk and welfare. Well, God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Young men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Now, here we have concerns about sex trafficking and pedophilia, about welfare, about 
obesity and the health crisis, and also about the mental health crisis for men. Now, William, in general, aren't these all things the right seems to talk about more than the left? Yeah, yeah. The 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 moral the the left and right are both talking about moral issues, but they're talking about different moral issues at different right. sort of hierarchy levels. Now, this so this, this is this is very interesting, right? And this author. Not the author of the song. I mean, not the author of the article. The author of the song, the the artist, says he's more centrist, but he's writing about these issues, so he gets labeled right because it tends to be what the right talks about. But this is a problem we also suffer from, is it not, William? Where yes, yes, we're not right wing, <laughs> but we also like Trey Parker, and Matt Stone said, like I we hate the right, but we really fucking hate the left, and that makes people think you're right. Because if you say yes. anything that the yes. right says, people think you're right. And I think this is an example of it. So the first thing is this the author of the A V Club article says, while that first couplet is frankly pretty baffling in its own right, it becomes even more confounding taking into account that Anthony says the song is him drawing the line on being quiet when I started seeing human trafficking being normalized, which he called one of the worst things that a human being can do. This lyric sounds the exact opposite of that. Here's what? the thing, William. Whoa, 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 I am whoa. confused. What the fuck? Yeah, yeah. So he read, oh, wait a minute. He read that lyric and, and took it as, I wish politicians would look out for minors and not just minors on an island somewhere. In other words, he's thinking he's saying, oh, politicians are paying, uh, aren't paying attention to minors. They're paying attention to prosecuting people having kids on the island right like he's looking at it the opposite way of the way the song is written the song is written is i wish politicians would pay attention to minors and not be stealing kids and putting them on an island somewhere oh now i see so you just explained it to me because i was very confused how he got the opposite interpretation what he's do you, do you saying see what i'm saying yeah he's saying that he thinks the author of the song is saying that pedophilia should be allowed yeah yeah. Because he doesn't... Isn't that what he's saying? Yeah, it, it has to be. I did not because, understand what he was saying because it's Justin, fairly obvious. isn't this... Oh, hold on. Isn't this exactly the collectivism versus individualism that we talk about so much? He's seeing Explain. it as politicians in the collective sense, like 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 some, some, uh, some uh, entity that is a collective, right? Like, like, uh, like a, uh, a sludge, right? That, uh-huh. that politicians, like the political class, should be not paying attention to uh, uh, to sex trafficking. They should be paying attention to minors. They're seeing it as class as as classes, right? And not as oh, I wish individual politicians were talking to minors and not talking to children. It's really interesting the way you just framed it, because you just sort of unlocked, or the word of the day is unpacked, uh, something I hadn't even thought of. And it's the way your brain concretizes a concept with its use over the long time. And what William, I mean by that is... from FU says you are 100% correct. I mean, I, I, I'm not jumping that far ahead, but... Oh, man. What, what, I'm, what I'm referring to is when you refer to a group of people and you're not thinking collectivistically, you still think of them as a group of individuals. Now yeah, I'm being yeah. very slow here because it's it's hard to wrap your head around what you just said. When I think of 
politicians, I think of them as a group, right? The word, I wish politicians would look out for minors and not just minors on an island somewhere. I was thinking of that as the group of politicians, but you're saying you're seeing it as a political, this person, not you, this person is seeing it as a political class. So he doesn't see individual people and individual identities and choices. Yeah. He doesn't see this as a politician choosing to focus on how to get to Epstein Island versus talking to minors about their their issues. Yeah, he doesn't see it that way. Right. So essentially, if you think in a classist sense, you're unable to see the distinctions and subtleties that exist. So it causes them to turn a blind eye to the corruption that exists within a class. And what I mean by that is he's not able to see here that there are politicians who do engage, maybe not on islands, but do engage in pedophilia. And I, I think that and that has been yeah. Yeah, actively proven. I, I don't think that's a conspiracy. I'm not saying all, but this is this explains a lot about why it's hard to argue with the left often, because they would say as a class, politicians don't. And I would, I would say never, pro- I would never, I mean, in a way, my mind is kind of blown because I would have, I would not, if someone had, if, if this had been a real life conversation I was having with this person with Lordy Lou, what a, what a doozy that would be. Um, I would, it would, I would have to stop the conversation and think because it, it's a, just a so twisted perspective, like in order to even, like, how would I even reach this person to have a discussion? Like us just now describing what the lyrics actually mean, I don't think that would compute for them. Right. They wouldn't be able to understand it. They would say, well, no, this is saying this is pro pedophilia. Look right there. Look at the sentence. Right. Right. It, it, because the first half of the sentence is up about protecting minors and the second minors ER, right? And the second half is about how they're not protecting minors and they're supposed to be an irony there with the not just, and it comes from the assumption of what are individuals doing. But you're saying when you look at it from a class perspective, you you don't have the same assumptions. And this goes to show how communication and ideas are skewed by whatever your fundamental ideas are. Yeah. Drucker always said communication that, well, it's simplification by Mark Horseman. Communication always happens in the listener. Well, let's see. Let's see here. If the second critique, the second paragraph I want to read, can be explained similarly. Although, interestingly, uh, there was already a refutation by accident, which is hilarious. So, further, the title of the song is, shall we say, open to interpretation. I disagree, but apparently it is. Uh, On one hand, Washington, D.C. is directly north of Richmond, implying that, in line with Anthony's self-declared centerism, the song is merely a screed against powerful politicians taking from the working man. But as some on lyric site Genius and elsewhere pointed out, Richmond was also the capital and northernmost city in the Confederacy. So in that case, Richmond north of (laughs) Richmond would be everyone in the north, which obviously paints a far grimmer picture. Because everyone, it's but this the, is the South shall rise again, Justin. But this is the class thing again, is it not? That everyone oh, north yes. of Richmond is rich. Uh, yeah. So everyone yeah. in the north is rich, and everyone in the south is poor, and everyone in the south is Confederate. Obviously, never, never been to Detroit or Chicago. Well, well, and this explains a lot, William, about like how I always say, like LA is more racist 
than the South. They just assume from a class standpoint that everyone in the South is racist. And this is an example of that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Also, Justin, isn't this an example of uh, the left does this all the time? They'll demonize someone as being stupid and uncultured and then draw some obscure historical connection completely out of their ass that you could only really get if you're steeped in the sort of academic milieu, right? Like this, right? Yeah. Can you tell me, I, Justin, I, I am not claiming that people are stupid for not knowing this, but how many people listening to this song can name the capital of the Confederacy or... <laughs> or any of that, uh, any of that Civil War history stuff, right? Oh, I agree. I agree. No, there's, there's no argument there. Would that would be such an obscure lyric, <laughs> right? And here's here's the thing that really bothers me about it, William. Is I get what you're saying about the way someone's psychology is shaped by internalizing classism on this level. Yeah, yeah. But there is no evidence otherwise in the song that there's anything about the confederacy or the civil war when referring to richmond yeah there's a way to do that if you were going to do that lyrically and make that a reference against yankees then there's a way there's other things that you would include that is almost required by the genre right there are songs that make fun of being from up north right yes so it could have been done, and even from a classist perspective, I don't think there is enough evidence for that to be true. And here's what's even funnier. So I went to Genius, which, by the way, I don't like that song. I don't like that site. The reason I don't like that site is uh, the moderation isn't very good, or it's very confusing. So there's a song, My Newfound Glory, on the album makes me sick. Uh, the Sound of Two Voices. Are you familiar with it, William? Of course. Well, Haley William fans, Paramore fans, think this song is Chad confessing to cheating on Haley. And <laughs> don't they have a timeline issue with that? <laughs> uh, well, that, Did he that, uh, travel back in time and write the song? <laughs> well, the, the album is uh, around the time they broke up, right? Like Happy Be yeah. Miserable is clearly a song about Haley because she wrote the song Rose Colored Boy, which is about Chad. And you yeah. see how those songs are kind of battling. But the point is, they have literally gone into Genius and annotated the song to say that. That this is Chad admitting he cheated on Haley. So I went in there and I posted a reply with a citation from an interview where Newfound Glory explained the meanings of all the songs. And I put in a quote from Chad saying, this is the meaning of the song. And that's not what he said. And my comment was deleted. So how is an objective citation deleted, but speculation is left up? Well, because, you know, uh, art is cannot be cannot have a purpose behind it. It's only the interpretation of the receiver that matters. Right. Art is not objective, Justin. I mean, I think that's the academic perspective. I think the logistical pragmatic perspective is this. This is the problem with the Internet is. There's not enough manpower to moderate. (laughs) It's not the hive mind. There's not enough manpower to moderate all of the content that is constantly being created. Understand what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. So what, how is genius going to have genius cannot pay someone to do that job. 
They should have people, if that job wants to be done properly, they should have people on that site constantly checking all the the annotations on the songs to make sure they are proper, right? To make sure they're intelligent and make sure they're well-cited. But if they did that, they'd go out of business because they don't make enough money to pay people to do that. And then the problem becomes, well, who has to do that? You have to moderate yourself when engaging with these sites and realizing the information isn't correct. But nobody does that because we're not taught that. We just think, oh, it exists on the Internet, so it's true. And now we understand where we're at as a culture. Because somebody will post this stuff and put it in the annotations and people will think it's true. Oh, that Richmond, north of Richmond means anyone in the north. So this is a racist song. And here's the irony when we're talking about not citing properly. Okay, go to the song. Go to the annotation. Somebody actually put an annotation and it says, replying to this critique. It says, in the song's YouTube comments, the, the song's author, Oliver Anthony, wrote, Just to be clear, Richmond, north of Richmond, refers to Washington, D.C. politicians. This is in no way a knock against people from the north. So the person who wrote the song has explicitly come out and said this interpretation isn't correct, yet AV Club still publishes it. Because again, do the editors have time to fact check? Do the authors have time to fact check? No, they just want hits and clicks. Yeah, I think I, I think this is another example of just uh, folks not respecting context just context dropping and it it's it's happens on uh on people who are ideologically captured on the right or the left right but uh it's something that it's something that it's just another example i think of that yeah and the reason i'm pointing it out is it's a song some people are gonna like it some people aren't But we have to drive this whole conversation about how everyone is the most evil person ever for either writing or liking a song. It can't just be like, oh, that's a song, right? Like, dude, I hate Katy Perry. But like, do you see me like writing articles and talking about how evil she is? No, I just don't listen to her. And when people want to listen to her, I say, I don't want to hear Katy Perry. And then they say why I said... So you can't go to any modern restaurant? I, I put up with it, right? Would yeah. these people put up with rich men north of Richmond being paid and played in a restaurant? I think uh, I think Trump should use it uh, as his campaign song. Oh God! <laughs> well, speaking of presidents and speaking of um, I don't know ridiculous topics, this is all ridiculous to me, William. And I'm interested in your reaction to it because a lot of this to me is who cares. So apparently, a couple of years ago, there was a book published about. Barack Obama, one of the many books that I'm sure will be published about him over the next, I don't know, rest of America, right? Because are people constantly writing books about older presidents? And you know there will be books about Obama. And the author has recently done a few interviews. And these interviews have sparked some interesting topics of conversation. Uh, The first is about his marriage, and the second is about his sexuality. So first, I want to read a couple paragraphs about his um, marriage. Garrow, the author, told Fox News Digital, the Obama marriage is genuine and loving, but it wasn't wrong to say that a mixed-race marriage could have made life difficult for Obama at the time. First of all, William, um, 
Isn't any marriage Obama is in a mixed race marriage because he himself is mixed? I was going to ask you the different question. Let's let's uh, have an alternative universe where your wife is actually from um, Romania. Would that be a, a mixed race marriage? Who my? Yeah, my wife. Yeah, so you have Polish and Romania, right? Oh. Like, or see what I mean? Or like, what about like some other like, let's say Greek, because that's a uh, more. Yeah, but I'm Italian, dude. I'm Polish and Italian. Are my parents in a mixed race like marriage? <laughs> that's what I'm asking. I'm like, part of it is the whole concept of mixed race marriage only mattered because of the uh, uh, prohibition and the social stigma around marriages between. Um, uh, blacks and other folks, right? That was right. the only issue. Well, that the 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 racism that people had, where yeah, yeah. we know for a while it was illegal to marry whites and blacks, but also yeah, that's what I'm saying. Just the but social stigma even makes so that I guess I could see, but like, would they would would that have been a social stigma between Barack and Michelle back then? Was there something I was missing? Well, I mean the. The rest of this is when we read the other two, the rest of this paragraph in the next one, it explains because of who his ex-girlfriend was. That's what they're uh, saying. The mixed race marriage. They're not calling the Obama's no. marriage mixed race. I was going to say am. because because it is mixed race, like you're saying, right, because he is mixed race. <laughs> he is mixed race. Yeah. But to, to respond to you, I want to say that I think part of it is also like the reason black and white was banned is because they're so obviously different visually. Yeah. Which yeah. adds to, like, obviously that's super fucking racist. It's like, oh, you look different, so you can't be married. But it's the same thing, like, Asians with anyone who's non-Asian, right? They just look very different. And I think that's where a lot of, like, the, the childish, immature racism comes from. So, to read the rest about this. Married in 1992, he later was elected to the Illinois State Senate in 1996. And after an ill-fated congressional bid in 2000, was elected to the U.S. Senate from Illinois in 2004. And then here's a quote from Garrow, the author. The one aspect that I will endorse or that is inescapably true is that by 1988, he knew that he wanted to run for public office in Chicago. And he knew that having a wife like Sheila Yeager, half Dutch, half Japanese, would not cut it in black Chicago. Having a non-black spouse 25, 35 years ago was an active political problem for a black candidate. So there's a couple things here. There is, of course, the argument that his marriage is politically expedient rather than focused on love, to which I say, so like William, Hillary and Bill. <laughs> well, right. Or like any, like yeah. most politicians. Any, nar- any, any politician that is highly narcissistic, this is going to factor into there. Right. And then this is part of the problem with politics in general. Should it not? Here, that's what's tough about it, right? I mean, we have this ideal of platonic love. Right, Like, oh, we love each other and we're supposed to be together no matter what. But as you just said with the last story, context matters. So shouldn't a politician pick their spouse based on the optics? But that's also what makes politicians become narcissistic and what mm. makes it such a, I, I don't know, maybe you could argue it's such an immoral profession because you start making decisions in a second-handed way. But then there's the other thing here where so Sheila Yeager is half Ju- Dutch, half Japanese. So we're not talking about like half Polish, half Italian, where those countries are very close to each other and they're both Roman Catholic, right? You would think if someone's half black and half white and they meet someone who's half Dutch and half Japanese, 
maybe they get along really well because psychologically they've been through similar things. So they understand each other. So you kind of can look at it if you're not looking at it from the surface level of, hey, these people don't look the same. They shouldn't be together. And you look at it of, hey, he's half black and half white. She's half Dutch and half Japanese, which, by the way, do you like how he doesn't get identified by countries, but she does? Isn't that kind of racist in itself? Yeah, yeah. Maybe you look at that and you say, maybe they have a lot in common. You wouldn't think someone who's Dutch and Japanese would have in common someone with, you know, European and African. I'm just going continents now because I don't know what countries, right? Oh, he's Kenyan, right? So European and Kenyan. I don't know what his white side is. But so Dutch and Japanese, European and Kenyan, maybe they have something in common. Look, even change that, William. When I say European and Kenyan and Dutch and Japanese, doesn't that sound a lot better than Dutch, Japanese, black, white? Do you see how even the language there is, it's classist, like you're saying. It's putting people into these really simplified groups and missing how they actually connect with each other. I'm going to take your silence as a stunned silence that you have nothing yeah, more to say on that subject. I have subject. nothing more to say on that subject. <laughs> but I do have stuff to say about the next subject. Well, I, I think the next subject is something you can talk about more than I can. Because I'm going to tell You're you, You're allowed dude, to talk about being gay, Justin. No, no, no. It's not that I don't think I can you talk can about it. closet. <laughs> it's just, okay. So basically, the long and short of this is, without reading all the quotes and everything... Here, I'll read the final one. Garrow said, I'm not a historian, not a psychotherapist, but, you know, I'm 70 years old. My sense of the world is, you know, a large majority of humanity has fantasy lives, so I don't find the passage in any way scandalous. It's a sort of representation of humanity. And basically what it is, is there are letters that had redacted sections that this historian um, tracked down. And in these sections... Obama apparently said he fantasized about having sex with men. And the reason, William, I am saying that you can comment on this more than I can is on the Kinsey scale, right? For those unfamiliar, there's a Kinsey scale of like how gay you are, right? Because look, everything's on a spectrum, right? I have honest to God, dude, never fantasized about having sex with a man. So to me, it's foreign that a man would fantasize about having sex with a man and not be homosexual. Now, do I care? No, I don't particularly care. I don't particularly care. But I don't think it's just, you know, Garrow says everybody has a fantasy life. To me, Garrow saying everyone has a fantasy life, that says more about Garrow than it does about Obama to me. And I, I'm interested in, in your perspective because I like people might say I'm lying. People might yeah, say, I "Oh, think, he, uh, I think ahead. that there's." Uh, first of all, I have to say the joke, um, Obatum, uh, because that's that was the name I came up with while we were doing the pre-show. Well, I was going to uh, ask you: Do you think Obama, when he fantasizes, is a bottom or a top? <laughs> that's the setup. I don't know. That's the setup. Yeah. See that? Okay. Well, we'll we'll redo that in post. Um, but. Uh, <sighs> I don't know is I can't help but look at this and say cuz this has been out for a while it just not had any coverage apparently and why 
why are we talking about this now again? Right? Like what, what is the obsession with this is part of the question I have, but um, I don't think, I don't think it's unusual for people to have weird fantasies, especially about sex. And this seems like, think about it in terms of women. Cause it's easier to understand. Don't a, a lot of surveys say women experiment in college. I'm sure that men do as well, and it's just a smaller percentage. So fantasy would be part of like if if we take that for granted, then some small, some larger percent of that would have fantasized about it at some point, right? So I don't even think this is really news. I think it's funny because if you remember, uh, Obama went from being um, uh, against gay marriage to being for gay marriage. Uh, in a very short amount of, of, of time span, we got, I remember he lost he lost his congressional bid, he won his Senate bid, and then next thing you know, he was running for president. And uh, and so it's funny, like this is going to become part of his like gay savior mythos. Uh, and so to me, it's kind of funny that uh, this is this is get, getting attention now, and is I think it's some of it is part of the you know. Uh, setting up the presidential legacy sort of stuff. So is this going to be uh, taught in the history books, Justin? He's going to be, uh, you know, if Bill Clinton was the first black president, is Obama going to be re- retroactively named the first gay president? I see what you're saying. And that's very, very interesting because I thought the the farce around this was like the right making a big deal out of this, right? Like, oh, see, blah, blah, blah. It explains why he's effeminate and explains how his relationship with Michelle is a sham. Because you know those stupid conspiracies oh, yeah. that say Michelle used to be a man, right? <laughs> You've never heard Maybe that before? Maybe she is. Maybe this is confirmed. I had heard that before, but now Obottom is confirmed. <laughs> right, and I figured that the farce here was the right. But you're saying the farce here is the left because they're trying to act like he's something he isn't. Right, he's yeah. some sort of gay savior, is what you're saying. A, yeah, a gay, yeah. A that's gavier? the that's the a gavier. Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, bottom the gavier. Um, the, yeah. It's that gavier think, behavior. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I I think there's farce on both sides here. Yes, it's a farce to point out. Oh, that you know, that's effeminate. Uh, I aren't aren't I the poster child when I'm not identifying as a woman as the least effeminate gay man? <laughs> Not and and not in the sense of like faking it, right? Like I just don't know how to. Justin, I'm thinking about hiring a gay man to help me decorate my house. <laughs> no, you're not. That's a lie. <laughs> I have a friend that's been advocating for that. <laughs> that's hilarious. That's like a that's like a Dave Chappelle skit, is it not? Like the black white yeah. supremacist. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's hilarious. That's something you're gonna have to tell us about in the future. If I if I hire one, it will be hilarious. Yeah. So, look, all of this stuff, man, I think you said it best. Like, this seems to be the left trying to set up his legacy. And on the other hand, now the right's trying to respond to it at the, uh, and, you know, make it look bad or they're using it as a way to continue to uh, attack Obama. But I don't maybe that's a good thing overall. And what I mean by that is this phrase has always been history is written by the victor, correct? Well, maybe the yeah. real power of the Internet is that we're recording everything right now and one day there will be you know maybe a hundred years from now 200 years from now or when our society has fallen a historian an objective historian who can go through and look at things the way they actually were 
see everything that was written and come to the actual truth or as close as possible to the actual truth. You know, they can see both sides on this and say, I, and I would believe it's what we're saying, right? Oh, okay, you know, maybe some men fantasize and he did. Doesn't make him gay. It doesn't make him a great supporter of gay rights. It was, he did what was politically expedient to him. But yeah. what the right was saying is is bad too. So I think we're pretty in the middle here and maybe someday somebody will. And maybe that's the advantage of the internet. Everything is recorded for somebody to go through one day and, and learn from in, in a healthy way. Well, you want to know what's not healthy, William? What's An that? island being on fire. So apparently, I don't know, my wife said this morning, is the fire still going on? So Maui caught on fire. And apparently, yes. it's is it still going on? Wait, does PG&E provide power to Hawaii? <laughs> is that the Texas thing? No, no, that's the, that's the California. That's how the California wildfire started. PG&E oh. not keeping up their electrical lines. Well, look, dude, I mean, do you want to read the quote first or go into my critique first? Go go read the quote first and then we'll okay. take it apart. So we have a couple quotes here about the whole fire thing, right? So apparently uh, when the fires were starting, there was a request made to divert water to fight the fire and Maui didn't allow it. And there's a whole... Um, political official who's being criticized because he's talked about how sacred water is look William I think we can agree on a certain level that water is sacred because we all need it to survive yes is that is that fair yes it is a requirement for human survival yes right so that makes it valuable and I would call that sacred right but maybe that's my secular perspective and this has become a whole controversy right that did this guy not let the water out because of his religious beliefs And here's uh, what the governor of Hawaii has had to say about everything. One thing that people need to understand, especially those from far away, is that there's been a great deal of water conflict on Maui for many years. It's important that we're honest about this. People have been fighting against the release of water to fight fires. I'll leave leave that to you to explore. So again, William, this is an example of something local that because the tragedy became epic in scale that the globe started paying attention to it and people started applying their global perspective to a local situation. Remember how I always say things need to go more local and we need to let people figure out things locally? To me, this is a prime example of that. As the governor's pointing out is, this has been going on for years and you guys are acting like it's more than that. I think the... Dude, I think a politician saying, I'll leave that to you to explore... I don't. I have no idea where this guy stands politically. I don't know anything about the governor of Hawaii, but that's pretty cool for the governor to say that, rather than take like a huge stand or anything. And then he added, "We have a difficult time on Maui and other rural areas getting enough water for houses, for our people, for any response. But it's important we start being honest. There are currently people still fighting in our state, giving us water access to fight." And prepare for fires, even as more storms arise. Now, that's a little more indirectly political, where he's saying the, the people who are treating water as sacred and not allowing them to use it for these causes are wrong. But he's still not saying it directly. So whoever this governor is, is at least politically deft on a certain way. Uh, I have a response to all of this. Anyone who's been listening to the, the Midside for a long time knows my response. But, uh, William, you go ahead first with whatever you have to say. 
Uh, I'm I'm channeling uh, uh, host emeritus Daniel right now. Uh, aren't they surrounded by water? That's Can't my we no. Solve this with don't, energy. Don't do, do not give that to Daniel. <laughs> that is my point. For him asking you, asking you this. Yes, is, is what I'm channeling. Can't we solve this, Justin? Yes, you know how we solve a it. Nice nuclear power plant, and no. uh, they don't even need a nuclear power plant. They could use geothermal. They could. They have unlimited electricity, and why? This is one thing I've never understood. They have unlimited potential for uh, electricity in Hawaii. They have fucking volcanoes. They have unlimited <laughs> geothermal power. They should have unlimited fresh water. Am I wrong? Like, yes, it would take capital to set up, and I understand that, but it should be unlimited. They have the Pacific Ocean, and they have volcanoes. I can put those two things together and make fresh water. Just, just say the word. What do they need to do to the water, William? Uh, degenderify it desalinate it oh damn it <laughs> did you say degenderify it <laughs> degenderify degenderification that's Whoa. a callback from like three episodes ago <laughs> <laughs> degenderify no de please just desalinate the fucking ocean like what and i'm sorry but to fight a fire it doesn't even ha it can still have some salt in it justin <sighs> oh my god i just i don't William, I don't like. This is one of those times where I'm like, I must be missing something really, really, really big. But then I do re like. Remember when I used to talk about this on the show all the time, and then I did research on it, and it was just people were worried about the negative environmental impacts of desalinating yeah, the ocean. They, they didn't. They that we covered it on the podcast that one failed in in uh, L.A. County, the one that they have in San Diego, the desalination, same idea. It went through all this shit, and it finally, like, it had passed everything, all the impact studies, everything else, and then the Coastal Commission at the last minute said, nah, it'll be fine. We don't need a desalination plant. We're worried about the fish. That was their right. literal justification. Right, because they said desalinating the ocean has harmful byproducts for the environment. What about the harmful byproducts of not desalinating the ocean? It's the argument they use against nuclear energy, too, right? We get yeah. this small yeah. amount of nuclear waste... Which we have plenty of time to figure out how to deal with that in the long run, versus the immediate problem now. I don't know. It and just, the immediate it, waste and the immediate waste caused by coal and 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 fossil fuels. If that's your idea, if your idea is to min minimize waste. Well, and the immediate waste caused by everything being destroyed by fire. I don't know. It, Did someone measure the carbon emissions here? <laughs> Are we going to sue uh, what whatever God? Uh, the Hawaiians attribute to fire for this uh, carbon emission. Well, we can we sue D Dwayne the Rock Johnson because he played Maui in Moana. Oh, that's true. <laughs> I don't know, man. It's hard. Like it's really, really hard for me. It's it's really, really hard for me. Yeah, like, technology can solve this issue. The ish the the problem here is politics, and uh, and I don't know all the historical pieces. So much like the governor, I'm going to. Leave that as an exercise to myself or or the the dear listener to figure out more. Maybe maybe people can chime on Discord with more context. Maybe our Hawaiian listeners can chime in. But I just don't see any way. I don't see how this couldn't be a solved problem. Yeah. So. Good luck, Hawaii. I've have you ever been to Hawaii? Yeah. Yep, uh, when I worked uh, at the NSA, I was there uh, 
I was there in Honolulu uh, on the naval base side. And that's something that surprised me is the lack of help from uh, from the uh, military folks there. Is there just not, is the Hawaiian National Guard just not something? It seems very strange. There's like it, a whole it, bunch of logistics like right there. It, it all seems strange to me. Uh, when I lived in California, I could have understood going to Hawaii, but... Now that I live in Florida, like, I have no desire to go to Hawaii. Do you understand my argument? Like, why would I go to Hawaii? I live in Florida. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, I don't know. This, to me, is like a strange island in the Pacific that I want nothing to do with. Like, I hope they figure it out, but, hey, they have look around you. Nuts. They have macadamia nuts. I'm going to go to Hawaii for macadamia nuts. And um, coffee, Kona coffee. All right. I, that's enough. You know what we need to do? We need to make this episode more ridiculous, and we need to talk about the movie Sound of Freedom. Yeah, I saw it. I'm going to talk about it in The Hopeful Bromantic with JML. As always, if you'd like to continue the conversation with us during the week, you can do so by joining our Discord channel. Uh, We always have people participating. This week, Grown Up Monkey told us that he was at Bucky's in Seaverville, Tennessee, and that it's incredible. So there's more evidence that if you get a chance, you should go to Bucky's. And then No Bro Ed Joe was talking about the Big Brother story we covered last week and said he has the same take as us. That's right. We're brainwashing people. So thanks, Ed Joe. Uh, and he started and, talking. Ed Joe, I did change your name, and I, I just so you know. So so after last week's show. <sighs> It does, in fact, say no, bro, Ed Joe. I wasn't just saying that. I was reading from the Discord that William did. And he talked about a previous controversy reality show Big Brother had in the past regarding race and the N-word and all the trouble the network got in. But again, like, isn't the point of reality shows like to put people together and see what happens and this controversy is natural? So interesting conversation he had there. And then Midsider Lucid for Pat- Fitzpatrick shared... Uh, from x.com twitter.com how much do you think by the way how much do you think it cost elon musk to buy x.com like that know. url i think he had it for a while didn't oh he? did he his yeah uh, uh, but he it probably cost him a lot back then too yeah so anyway shared Zack snyder's tweet or xing or i don't know what do you do xing is that like crossing like maybe it, what what's going to happen during x Four X during Christmas, during Xmas. What anyway, about the X Games? The X Games. Games. Is X going to become the official sponsor of the X Men? So Zack Snyder tweeted that he's adding the final touches on the Rebel Moon teaser trailer, and that will be out this coming Tuesday. So maybe it's already out when you're listening to our episode, or maybe it's out soon. So we will review that on Trailer Takedown uh, next week. So if you want to. Add to the conversation like all of these midsiders did this week. Just go to midside.com or midside.com slash podcast. Click on any episode link. And in there, there'll be the Discord join code. Okay, so William, I saw Sound of Freedom. Now, 
some background well, here. Well, I have I actually have a recording of the sound of freedom. Are you ready? There it is. That doesn't sound like children having a good time. <laughs> so, I did not want to see this movie. And what I mean by that is like I the topic doesn't offend me, right? It doesn't bother me. It you know, looked like it could have been interesting. Wait, I, if I interpret that as uh, as they would over at uh, our favorite website, then that means you're pro pedophilia, right? Right. It, the, tar- the, the 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 topic doesn't offend you, right? I, the topic of being anti pedophilia doesn't offend me. The the topic of rescuing a victim of sex trafficking does not offend me, right? It, it wasn't that. I didn't think of the movie as some sort of alt right thing, and that's what I'm going to ask you about before I give my review and everything. Your perceptions of it. But I have wanted to see for the past two weeks, The Last Voyage of the Demeter, the the movie based on the one chapter of a Bram Stoker book. That's a horror movie, but my wife doesn't want to see it. So we saw Ninja Turtles and this instead, Sound of Freedom. So that's what brought me to the theater to see this. Now, William... What are you, you haven't seen the movie? What are your thoughts about everything? Because I know there's like a cultural conversation around this as well. I I think that from the at least from the cultural conversation, it seems like the left is calling it anti-immigrant and like I don't know like pro revenge somehow or pro like vigilantism a bit and then kind of a conspiracy theory like oh this stuff is just conspiracy theories like imagine t- looking at like watching taken and being like oh this is pro conspiracy theory or like uh, uh 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 i don't know what other movie action movie would that would that be a part of something with something with a moral dynamic taken is one maybe the uh what's the uh keanu reeves ones John Wick? Maybe one of those movies. Yeah, John Wick. Maybe John Wick, like reading it as a morality play. Well, it is a morality play, and actually that's probably the weakest part about it. And and I'll get into that in a second. But as far as the anti-immigrant thing, the director is from Mexico. He's so, born in Mexico. So we know, we know you can be as long, if you're anti, if you're not on the left, then you are racist by definition. Right. And that that that's the problem here. Right. Is this is one of the most Hispanic movies I've ever seen. (laughs) I need some ranchero music to be playing. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the thing. Right. Okay, So what do I mean? What I mean by that is this movie was not what I expected at all. And that's on a few fronts. One. I didn't expect it to be as Hispanic as it is. And I don't mean music and everything. I mean, this movie is primarily set in Central and Latin America. It is dealing with issues from that. And it shows, I mean, it was primarily shot in Colombia, Cartagena. Primarily shot there. And we're going to say it's anti-immigrant. When the movie doesn't even primarily take place in the United States. Uh, I also had the perception that it was going to be like Taken. And it was not at all. There is maybe one action scene in the entire movie. This is not an action movie. This is a drama. This is very, very much a drama. I also expected this to be 
like a Kevin Sorbo type super religious right wing movie. Do you know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? Yeah. Kirk yes, Cameron. Yes. yes. Where yeah. the emphasis is on the religion more than it is on making a movie. And what I will say is, I was very pleasantly surprised by this movie. Now, that doesn't say it's a perfect movie, but this is my review for it. Visually powerful directing is undermined by plotting that ultimately degenerates into message fiction. And what I mean by that is the following. The problem with the right has always been that they see the left in their extreme cases, in Oscar bait, in A24 movies, making movies that are message fiction. Message fiction is movies that what's most important about it, or books that what's most important about it is getting the message across, not about telling a good story. Does that concept make sense, William? Yeah, absolutely. It's the passion of the Christ all over again. Right. Which, who else was in that? Jim Caviezel, and he's the star here, right? Mm -hmm. And the problem with the right has always been they're trying to fight the left by playing that game. But the left has never won because of that. The left has won because their ideas are taken for granted in average movies. Everyday movies. Everyday media. And the right hasn't figured it out yet that the way to start fighting back or the way to get on an equal playing field, is to make something equally as good. Well, this movie is them starting to figure it out. This director is very talented. And what I mean by it is the following. At the beginning of the movie and throughout it, there is not a lot of telling. There is not expository dialogue. This director is showing not telling. I was very aware of that. I was like, wow. I thought that explicitly. He is showing me, not telling me, which that takes skill. There was only one scene early on where the Jim Caviezel's partner is like, man, this job's really tough. You see a lot of bad stuff. And I'm like, why are they saying that rather than showing it? But the challenge of this film is you want to talk about the horrors of sex trafficking children, but you can't show it directly because then you're participating in that. So there was a challenge there, but that's part of the the skill that they were able to get around that. Um, And the other thing that really stood out to me about this movie and the direction is this guy knows shot composition. This guy knows lighting. This guy knows symmetry. There were shots throughout this movie that were just beautiful with the framing, with the composition with the lighting. And I just looked at them and I was like, wow, he also was able to pull off the darkness without the grittiness. And we'll see this in a couple of the trailers we're going to talk about where the left view of an indie movie or the left view of naturalism makes it so things are very gritty and gross. And the film, the cinematography in itself almost isn't crisp, right? It's that Christmas in a Zack Snyder movie the cinematography there that people react to a lot because it's not meant to be real life. It's meant to be, you know, exaggerated. He still has this. So even though a lot of the movie in the third act is in the jungles of Colombia, it's not, I mean, it's not civilized, but it's not like dirty and gross and you're reveling with being in the mud. It, it looks like a movie and that makes you want to watch it and it makes it 
enjoyable. And Jim Caviezel's character is not over the top. He's not using a lot of dialogue. Even the character that's more sort of over the top and larger than life isn't going too far with it. And that's the thing. What this movie does well, William, I think is show that you can have a serious, slower drama without it being naturalistic. And I think so many people nowadays have confused naturalism with a slower drama. Now, here's the thing. All that said, the greatest problem with this movie is the ending. I don't know if you want to hit spoilers. I mean... William, what do you think happens at the end? If he's going There's to walkers in the barn and Lori's pregnant, if he's Everyone going dies, the end, <laughs> that would have been a better ending. But, um, if he's trying to rescue a little girl, what do you think happens? The little girl rescues him instead. <laughs> that would have been old school it's a drama, right? It's a drama. Well, th- that would have been naturalism, right? Naturalism is they both, he fails, but by finding her, he finds himself, and then, you know, he realizes the meaning of life is just to find people, and it doesn't matter if you're stuck in the jungle or not. Something like that. Th- I mean, that, I basically just described everywhere, 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 all at once, right? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Where it was yeah, like, it doesn't yeah. matter if we're rocks, we're rocks together. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that. Let's just do taxes and laundry for the rest of our lives together. That sounds like a good life, doesn't it? No. So this movie is framed with, it opens up with how the kids, the brother and the sister get trafficked. Then after that, it shows Jim Caviezel's character rescuing the brother and his struggle to try and start a mission to rescue the girl. The whole mission, he rescues the girl. And then it ends with the daughter back at home and she plays the drums and sings which echoes back to an earlier scene where they rescued other kids and the kids started singing and playing and that was the sound of freedom so now she's free right that sounds good right the way i just described that symmetry sounds good right william yeah sounds like a decent ending to a movie but here's the problem ready for the problem the second he rescues the girl his character disappears from the movie so we spend 90% of the screen time with this character investing him in emotionally. We learn about his family, right? He keeps talking to his wife and he keeps saying like, what if this was your daughter and he's got five kids and his daughter texts him at one point. It feels like she's my daughter. And then we get to the end of the movie. He rescues her and he disappears from the movie. And then after the scene with her, it's singing we find out all this stuff about the real person it's based on and what that guy did. Why was none of that in the movie itself? That was a great final scene, her singing and everything. That's great. But why was that other stuff not in the movie? Why did you drop him? Because none of the characters matter, ultimately. What matters most is the message. Likewise, Justin, there were- did he did he write this as well as direct it? No, he didn't write it. Other people wrote it. I would have to. Yeah, but is it could it could it be that? Could this be the material he was given? Oh, I think it's completely. I don't. Oh no, it says he wrote it. It says written by Rod Barr and Alejandro Monteverde, and Alejandro Monteverde directed it. So he uh, he did write it as well. So I don't know his own personal beliefs and his own personal politics. I don't know who this Rod Barr guy is. Right. I don't know anything about this, but 
I, I think we have to hold him accountable for it and say he's too involved with message fiction. So all these good things, it is uh, undermined by that. Because then we start going into the end. Here's the real life stuff that happened, which would have been great over the credits, right? Over the credits say this is what the real person did and this is what happened in real life. And then even over the credits, they had a a message from Jim Caviezel how this is the the second most important movie I've ever done beyond Passion of the Christ and people didn't want this movie made and here's how we're going to get this movie promoted and you need to get other people to see it. And look, is this an important topic? Yes. Does this do a good job at portraying a lot of it? Yes. But you lose the emotional resonance and you're playing simply on the extreme absurdity of, hey, this is child endangerment. You're relying on solely that to carry the weight at the end of the movie rather than, hey, here's the character you've identified with. Do you understand what I'm saying, William? Like, what if we had seen him go back to his family and really appreciate his family and deal with the weight of what had happened? Or what if we saw him and his wife interact with the father getting him his daughter back? There's a lot that could have been done here besides just writing that character out. And characters that helped the main character, they disappeared too. So they, they were purely plot devices. Is anything that I'm saying making sense, William? Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because it sounds like there's some talent here. Maybe we could get a non-morality play uh, for this guy to actually direct. Yeah, he this could have been a non-morality play. I mean, you can do this and you can make it have a point and your point will stand without that. So look, there is talent here. So honestly, dude, Sound of Freedom... I give a solid bro rating. It's not terrible. It's not amazing, but it's good. And if you watched it, you could do a lot worse. It's just, you're going to get to the end and be like, okay, what happened to the main character? Because the main character doesn't matter anymore. All right. That's a movie that came out. Let's talk about some movies and shows that are going to be coming out in trailer takedown. Every week I post them, the trailers in Discord, usually on Saturday, so that gives you a chance to watch them when you want. Maybe you want to watch them before the episode, maybe you want to watch them after the episode, or maybe you want to watch them during. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. You watch a trailer, we talk about it. Trailer takedown. First trailer. She Came to Me stars Peter Dinklage and Anne Hathaway. Peter Dinklage is a opera composer and creator, and Anne Hathaway is his doctor wife, I'm assuming. And William, I got to ask you, I'm really interested in what you have to say here, because to me, this carries what I was talking about. Like, why do people think this is interesting? Why do people think this is entertaining? These people, to me, are unbearable. So it carries with it that indie idea of like, oh, if we make all the characters quirky, it shows that they're interesting. Like, I mean, I guess the premise is kind of cool that 
Peter Dinklage is trying to get inspiration and he meets a woman and that woman inspires him and then he has an affair and the woman becomes obsessed with him. Like you could do a movie about that. That plot, like if you just told me that plot, I'd be like, okay, that's that's not a bad plot. But they're all so unbearably quirky that it seems so fake that I don't want anything to do with any of this. And this is someone who likes Peter Dinklage and I think his, his performance is good in this. I don't think any of the acting's bad. I just think the material they're given to work with is by somebody who thinks they're a lot smarter than they are. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Tackle. Tackle. Yeah, when you think of quirky, think of like characters like on How I Met Your Mother or Friends, right? But they're not doing the characters quirky like that, right? They're quirky as in annoying and just like totally totally uh abrasive right yeah and and like even barney in how i met your mother as as like over the top he was like uh misogynistic he wasn't ever abrasive right like there's a genuine care to his character it's the part of why i never liked uh uh was it uh big bang theory i never liked that because the character seemed to me so annoyingly abrasive yeah and um, to, so to add add to that william it's not just the characters, it's that they take the direction and make them part of the characters. And what I mean by that is the opening where like Peter Dinklage is trying to come up with an, a melody in his head and the direction is kind of following that and its pattern and its pacing, it makes it even more unbearable. Yeah. Yeah. So uh yeah, I'm with you. I mean what a great actor to waste on such a shitty movie. I mean, whatever. I, tackle. Tackle. Second trailer. My Animal is a movie that will be released on both Paramount Plus and in theaters at the same time. It's about a girl who, I guess, is in a family of werewolves and tries to be in love. Wouldn't it be a pack? Yeah, but I'm saying that because they don't really show them being werewolves and there's only a couple hints with the eyes. So it's very clear. They Look, here's the thing. Like the werewolf thing's been done, right? It was done on True Blood, it was done in Twilight. Yeah, so Twinkly Vampires. It's sort of like they took that and made it an indie movie, but then I'm burying the lead here because it's even worse. This is a so she's trying to be in love, except it's a interracial, intergender relationship. So it's a lesbian interracial relationship. This seems like this was completely made for the purpose of representation. And I don't, it just, I have zero interest in this. There was nothing, nothing interesting in this beyond the fact that if you wanted representation and you're like, oh, wow, it's so cool that they have a, a lesbian interracial relationship. It's sort of like, what was that movie Spotlight, William? Where it was like about the gay black guy who went to jail for drugs. Like, mm -hmm. that's the entire premise. That's interesting. I mean, I guess to some people, this stuff's interesting. To me, this isn't a conflict. It's just checking boxes. Oh, and it has that naturalistic grossness that I said Sound of Freedom did a good job avoiding. Tackle. Tackle. Yeah, this, uh, you know, I, I hate to say this, but this makes me wish for the days of the uh, 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 hetero-baiting lesbian love affair 
uh, scenes and movies. Uh, instead, we get this uh, just complete. This is representation. This is, like you said, this is just for representation. It's not to tell an interesting story or anything else. It's look, uh, we've got all the ingredients of our woke soup, and we're just going to put it all in there. And uh, we're, I'm sure, isn't it set like in Alaska or somewhere? I'm sure there'll be racist and homophobic people everywhere. And it's it's the Nazi fan- fantasy, I'm sure. I'm reading between the lines here, Justin, but that's what I'm predicting, just based on the the scenes that are shot, the interactions with the folks uh, that are hinted at in the in the in the thing in the in the trailer. So, nah, I think I'll just uh, I'll just pass. Ugh, tackle third trailer the persian version is i'm assuming accidentally named very well because william it really is the persian version of what you were just talking about at its heart it seems like it could have a good point right this whole idea of in the same sense of catholic we have the stereotype of the catholic schoolgirl being repressed and it creating problems this seems to be talking about the Muslim young woman being repressed in the same way. There's a line in there about the way Muslim young women are supposed to be passive and, you know, go along with things. And it it could be fine. But then it seems to be about how she accidentally gets pregnant by a gay drag queen? Metrosexual. What sexual? Well, no, it's brother. His brother was, me- or no, her brother's metrosexual. He's gay. She's lesbian. I needed a, I need a family tree in order to <laughs> understand this. I mean, look, it's like the comedic version of. Actually, let me put it this way: if you took the last two trailers and, and put them together in a blender, this is what you would end up with. <laughs> Tackle. Tackle. Uh, this is if Crazy Rich Asians were uh, the naturalism was set to eleven, isn't it? That's what it is, uh, dude. Crazy Rich Asians uh, is a good movie, and it's it's a good theme about. That's what yeah, I'm saying. Okay, if you turn the naturalism to eleven, then you get this. Movie. Are you assuming collectivism <laughs> is and uh, yeah? Are you assuming collectivism is a premise of naturalism? I think I think in order to turn it to eleven, you would have to mix in collectivism. It's sort of like you know. Uh, uh, the uh, extra amplifier you need in order to get from 10 to 11. Okay, I agree with you then. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, wow. Uh, like, this... The, <laughs> you know how... <laughs> you know how uh, on ACS they do a uh, uh, made-up movie where they have callers call in the title of the movie and they just make up the plot? I feel like this was a made-up movie. Like... I'm going to have to ask uh, uh, superfan Giovanni if they actually made up a, t- a movie plot for this movie, because this sounds like something that they have definitely done on Made Up Movie segment. So, no, thank you. I think I will pass on this one as well. Tackle. Final trailer. Scott Pilgrim Takes Off is an anime adaptation of Scott Pilgrim vs. the World by Netflix. Uh, it's executive produced by Edgar Wright the director of the film adaptation and it's showrun and written by Brian Lee O'Malley, the creator of the comics. Uh, I briefly heard about this and then I was very surprised when I watched this because the entire voice cast is back. Uh, I don't watch anime. So this animation style is very rough for me. 
It doesn't seem smooth. Um, maybe that's just the way the trailer is cut. However, as much as I think the film is better because the ending, you know, the sort of self-respect versus the sort of understanding, the, the book is still excellent because obviously it was able to lead into the movie. And seeing that all of the talent involved with both the book and the movie is involved in this, I have extremely high hopes for this because if anyone listening doesn't know, Scott Pilgrim versus the world is one of my favorite movies. I think it's one of the, the greatest movies ever made. I don't think there's anything wrong with that movie. I don't think I can say one negative thing about it. Uh, people like to critique the ending. Maybe that's the one thing you could say. Maybe they could combine in this anime. Maybe they could combine the sword of self-respect with not pursuing Ramona. And it would be a better ending. I don't know. We'll see. I'm interested in seeing what they're going to do because Edgar Wright has hinted at this being more than a simple straight adaptation of the books. And it looks like it's going to be multiple seasons. So I have extremely high hopes for this. The largest of hugs. Hug? Yeah, this looks interesting. I mean, I mean, it's no arcane when it comes to animation. I think we can all agree on that, and that's just not my biased opinion as a uh, Oscar uh, award-winning uh, Netflix animation series. Uh, but it looks interesting, and it's you know, I think it's a series, right? So I don't know how many have. Do we know anything about how many episodes and and stuff like that? No. Um, it would be interesting to see what they do with this because. Uh, I'm hoping it's not made for a modern audience, which seems to be the trap that every Netflix series um, runs into. So this is, uh, by definition for me, a Netflix and hug. I think, William, that because they're doing it as an anime, because anime seems to be, from what I've read, I don't watch anime, as I said, anime seems to be the one genre that's sort of insulated from doing that. And I think the fact that they're doing it as an anime and Edgar Wright has said for a long time he thinks it would make a great anime. I think that's kind of a sign that they're not going to be simply pandering with it. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, maybe, maybe. I mean, Netflix has been trying to wokeify some of the anime that they're, they've been purchasing and, and, and working on. Yeah, so and that's... I don't know. That's I'm, the biggest problem with Netflix. It's hard to tell if the representation is natural by the creatives or if it's something netflix is requiring i know rebel moon is going to have a non-binary character in it is that something Zack snyder included because why not right or is netflix <laughs> making him do it you see what i'm saying and i mean we talked about before how diverse the cast of army of the dead was is that intentional well look at what they did to cowboy bebop i know that's live action but the cowboy bebop they turned a character who was because of the medication forced on him by the military he uh, grew breasts. Okay, they turned that person into an androgynous transgender character. Yeah. So we'll see. So a victim of military industrial complex. Just his whole story wiped away in the name of mod diversity. Oh, so they didn't even make him like a victim who became androgynous or transgender because of what happened. No. They just. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, William. That brings us to the end of this episode. What did we learn this trip? Uh, that, uh, if you fantasize about having sex with Obama, uh, 
that means that you fantasize about having sex with a bisexual man, apparently. Justin, what did you learn this trip? That apparently nobody on an island has figured out how to desalinate the ocean. Although, don't they do that in Aruba? I'm pretty sure Aruba has a desalinization plant. Maybe we should just take tips from Aruba. All right, I want to thank everybody for listening. If it wasn't for you, this would just be me talking into the corner of my closet like a crazy person. It still is that, but I feel a little bit less crazy. If you want to support us, you can go to themidside.com slash store, pick up any merch, themidside.com slash the cut, pick up my novel, themidside.com slash Patreon, and themidside.com slash locals. Patreon is per episode, locals is per month. This is how we keep the lights on. I mean, I just had to renew the hosting for the website this month, and that's only possible because of you all. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't really have the funding to do that. So if you want to grow the show, tell a friend. Most importantly, tell a female friend. Tell Ramona Flowers. This concludes your journey into the midside. I'm Justin Emanzeski reminding you that if things get tough, take a step back and witness the farce. Have a Typhoon Hillary free day. Oh, no. The hurricane blew life on the midside into the midside outro spot. Yeah, that was bizarre. <laughs> I just pressed the wrong button. I blame. My, I can only blame myself. Well, we should avoid the flooding since I'm, you know, hours north of L.A., but uh, sounds like Palm Springs is a little bit effed. Yeah, it looks like it's right in the path of the hurricane, but, you know, I live in Florida. I have no sympathy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what is, what is three inches of rain in an hour to you? That's lunchtime.